listeners. I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? In each short conversation, I ask a writer a non-writing related question that lets you and me get to know them just a little bit better as a person. I'm an author myself, so I'm always looking for an excuse to ask the odd questions. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Gary Phillips, described by Publishers Weekly as the epitome of the noir cool he writes about in his mysteries. Gary has written 15 novels and graphic novels, at least 50 short stories, nine comic books, and he's edited several anthologies. Last year saw the release of book one in Gary's newest adventure series, Matthew Henson and the Ice Temple of Harlem. Hey, Gary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Joni. I appreciate you uh, bringing me on. So, Gary, in Matthew Henson and the Ice Temple of Harlem, which I finished last week, and I just loved it. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So you reimagine the real-life Arctic explorer as this larger-than-life crime fighter in 1920s Harlem. And then you round out the cast with these other notable characters, from Bessie Coleman, who was America's first Black aviatrix, to the gangster Dutch Schultz, to the inventor Nikola Tesla. So there's all this rollicking adventure. But I want to ask, what made you choose Matthew Henson to be the hero of this new crime series? You know, it's funny. I have known about Henson for, well, decades. And then, I don't know, somehow or another, I guess the last couple of years, also, I think because I've been writing more sort of both hard-boiled stories as well as some uh, pulp or pulp-ish stories, I got to thinking about him and I guess thinking in the context of, uh, as we do in the West, we reinvent these characters from our history, be it, you know, Buffalo Bill Cody or Bell Star, and kind of reimagine them, right, for an audience of today. So I, I somehow or another, then all that kind of brought me to Henson, and I thought, well, here's a guy who never honestly got his due in real life, and so now can I take him and remake him and set him in the context of now the late 20s, so it was right before the stock market tanks and, and, and the depression comes on. But things are better kind of high and, and we're in, in the Harlem Renaissance and we have all these other uh, fascinating historical characters I could put into the mix. And so I think all that then propelled me to finally say, well, OK, look, let me just try to write this story, have some fun with it and see where it takes us. One review of this new novel shares, along with the rampaging retro action, Phillips smoothly incorporates biting social commentary on the racism of the era. Gary, that element of social and political commentary, that's been a trademark of your work right from the very beginning, starting with your novels featuring the Black private investigator, Ivan Monk. So I would love to hear you talk a little bit about why you write, to quote you, crime fiction with a political edge. Well, you know, uh, Joni, I think you got to walk that line, right? You can't be too heavy handed. You can't be preachy. You can't be standing on a soapbox. On the other hand, you do want to incorporate some real world notions of, of how both race and race relations have, have ebbed and flowed in our country. And I think particularly for Henson, he's a larger life character in the context of Harlem. But even Matthew Henson knows that once he steps outside of Harlem into the larger New York area, his reception is different, right? His, he's looked at as different. He is seen as different. But the idea being that he is aware that he's not so self-absorbed that he doesn't understand that I'm still a black man in 1928 in America. You know, he speaks his own mind, but he's also very careful. He's also very clear. Where is he stepping foot? What doors he's going through at any given time? 
your work is often described as hard-boiled or noir. Mm-hmm. And one reviewer said you write some of the most realistic crime fiction in the genre. So I'm curious, what drew you to this genre? Well, uh, you know, I grew up uh, long ago and far away. I was given a gift. I think I was like eight or nine. And uh, my aunt, I call her my Aunt Virginia. She was actually just a woman that lived with my, my uncle, my Uncle Sam. Uh, but she gave me this gift. It was from the uh, Reader's Digest. Used to do these compilations. And so it was a collected Sherlock Holmes, a collected uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and uh, and I think what was the third one? Was it Dashiell Hammett? Yeah, I think it was. I think it was Dashiell Hammett. So it just kind of sealed the deal for me. I think that it just was in my head that this was just such a great form of having characters on the stage, of doing pretty much any kind of story you wanted to do. And all those years later, when I finally sat down to write my own stuff, I think because I had been so uh, steeped and indoctrinated into the crime fiction form, I just couldn't imagine writing anything else. I could just see you as this little kid surrounded by all those Reader's Digest books. (laughs) (laughs) So you're this kid growing up in South Central, and you love to read mysteries and adventures. But I was wondering, are there any other experiences in particular that influenced your love of storytelling or that made you think, I could do that. I could be a writer. Uh, Jonah, you're reeling me back into the years. Uh, (laughs) Again, when I was a kid, not only was I reading, you know, that kind of literature we just talked about, I was also reading comic books. In particular, I was reading Marvel comics because in those days, in my neck of the woods, uh, you read Marvel comics. You didn't read a DC comic book Uh, (laughs) because DC was considered too goofy and too silly in those days. Because, you know, you read Spider-Man because he had angst. You read the Hulk. You read the Fantastic Four and so on. (laughs) And my dad, being a a child of the Depression, uh, I think maybe I got an allowance of a couple of bucks, right, at some point. And, you know, this is in the days when comics were only 12 cents. So, you know, I'd come home, of course, with a load of comics from the corner store. uh, Whiteheads, in fact, the name of the store was. And I think my dad, just to make sure that he wasn't throwing his money down the drain on his goofy kid, (laughs) Uh, you know, he would just ask me the plot of this or that, whatever the comic book was. Right. And of course I was just eager to tell him what the plot was. I was an enthusiastic, you know, recounter of these magnificent stories, these magnificent tales. And so I think at that point in my subconscious, deep in my head, I just kind of figured out, man, this is great. This is so cool just to be able to tell these stories. I don't know. It's just, it's just always been a gap and always something that's really, uh, just gave me a charge, man. Well, that enthusiasm definitely transfers to the page. Did you have a favorite comic book character when you were growing up? Well, yes, I think so. And I think he's probably still my favorite character, though he's been taken through the mill a lot of times or had various um, incarnations, which is to say uh, Daredevil. I always got a kick out of Daredevil. Uh, You know, this blind superhero has this radar sense. Well, Gary, maybe you should take on Daredevil and give him his own adventure series. (laughs) Carrie, you know, you don't just write prose and graphic novels and comics. You're also a writer on a hit TV series, Snowfall, that airs on FX. So I wondered, is it tougher? What's the art of switching gears from novels to graphic novels to comics to writing for television? Prose, you have a lot more real estate, right? You can certainly go deeper into detail because you have to because that's the only way um, the reader is getting some sense of, you know, he walked into the room or what did the room look like? Whatever, right? You don't just say threadbare. Whereas in a comic book script, as well as a TV script, you would just say threadbare because then you leave it to the artist or the production designer (laughs) to say, you know, to visualize that, to show what that looks like. 
but all three of those mediums, they all require certain basics, which is to say they do all require, a, you know, for more or less a plot, at least in my case, a plot, narrative drive, uh, dialogue that illuminates but does not overly explain, right? But that illuminates character that that helps us propel the story forward, uh, you know, as well as then, of course, what is left uh, unsaid, what is not being told. And I think as long as you keep those parts of the puzzle in mind, um, you're not thrown by writing for this medium or that medium. Carrie, I want to talk a little bit more about your work on Snowfall. You're a writer and you're the executive story editor on that show. What's that a day on the job like in that writer's room? I would certainly be remiss if I did not say that it's very much a collaborative effort. Every day I get a charge out of it because, man, we drill down into characters. We drill down into the situations. We drill down to what are motivating people that we're putting on the stage, putting them through their paces. Uh, and as well as, then we're, you know, all these other things that we're going to try to bring in because now we're coming into our fifth season. How do you keep them in motion? How does the action of one character affect the action or reaction of another character? I, I mean, my God, John, we, we, we toss away more story elements than we can ever use, but it's okay because it's our process and we eventually get down to telling you the story. Gary, I'm curious, as a prose writer, do you like writing for the screen? I think, Joint, for me, at this stage of the game, because I, I've come to TV so late in, in my golden years, in, uh, in my so-called career, uh, <laughs> I get a kick out of it. I like the, I like the idea that I can do both or I can still, you know, I've, I've also got a graphic novel I've got to get started on. I've got a short story collection I'm editing that I'm putting together. So these things, I, they bring joy to me. Hopefully that means they bring joy to the reader. But I like the idea that I can kind of, uh, hop is not quite the word, but I can kind of move in and out of these different sectors and I can work on this in the morning and then I got to, you know, jump into the writer's room. And then maybe during lunch, I try to go and I did some editing on another person's short story for this anthology. So all, all those things are great. Um, you know, they have a symmetry to themselves, but they also kind of work together and it keeps, <laughs> keeps me, um, I guess alert, alert is the word I want, right? Which is to say, <laughs> to the extent that I can have my cake and eat it too, which we know that you can't really, but to the extent that I think I am, I'm quite enjoying this period of my writing career. Crime Spree Magazine wrote an article about you with the headline, Gary Phillips, the hardest working man in crime fiction. That article was about four years ago, and you do not seem to be showing any signs of slowing down at all. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, do you think you'll keep going at this pace? Do you like this kind of pace? <laughs> yeah, until I, until I keel over from a heart attack, yeah. <laughs> you could be one of your own superheroes in your comic books that you write about. Burned out man. <laughs> <laughs> I read in your bio that you occasionally lose money at the poker table. Do you have any time to still lose money at the poker table? Not so much now, uh, Joni, although, you know, now that now that we're starting to, by the way, now that we're starting to go back, you know, to in-person uh, conventions and, and what have you. Yes, I am looking for, I'm not, I'm not looking forward to losing money, but I am looking forward to the camaraderie one has around the poker table. So uh, to the extent that not probably this year, but certainly next year, I, I certainly see myself stepping back out again to at least one or two of our, you know, our mystery conventions, BoucherCon or what have you, or Left Coast Crime. So to that extent, yes, I look forward to uh, talking smack and throwing down the cards. I want to switch gears and talk about your experience teaching writing. I know that you've taught in the MFA program at Antioch, and you still do seminars when you have the time. But I was curious, your work and your genre is often described as plot-driven, but when I read your books, 
you are the master of like flashy and well-fleshed out characters and a great diversity of characters. So I was kind of curious what advice you give to your students or your former students in terms of developing characters. You know, that's another great question. And I think, I think all writers, we, we wrestle with that, right? Oh yeah. I freely admit that I'm probably much more plot driven than I am character driven, or at least initially, at least initially the, the idea that gets me going is, is, uh, well, if this happens, then that happens and what have you. But then once you sort of think about that, then you certainly do think about, well, what's the person that I'm going to put through their paces in this? Who are they, right? Where were they at before we came to them in the story? What's their backstory that we don't necessarily reveal or we just reveal the bits and pieces? But nonetheless, we, the writer, we want to have some sense of who this person is before we you know, put them in motion, put them into the story, and hopefully they are the agent that propels the story forward. Or if they are, in fact, being uh, buffeted by events in the story, well, what are we saying about that person? Or what are we saying about how we are constructing that story? So I, I guess all of that to say is that you try to make it as um, seamless as you can, right? Yes, you want to have interesting characters. You want them to have odd and strange notions sometimes because that makes for interesting developments and in the characters you present on the page or present on, on the screen, you want them to be at odds, not in a physical way, but you want them to be at odds in an emotional and a psychological way because of this face. So that's, that is the basis of good drama and that's the basis of keeping the audience or the reader interested. Gary, I have one more question for you, which is if you were to write a six word memoir, what would it be? <laughs> well, this is this is with apologies to uh, Howling Wolf, <laughs> and here it is. I wanted water, but got gasoline. <laughs> uh, why'd you choose that memoir? <laughs> Why I choose that? You know, you don't you didn't get to expect it, right? You 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 didn't get what you wanted. You didn't quite get what you needed, but but now you got to make the best of it. Uh, I don't know. You strike me more as a gasoline guy, anyway. Than <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Burning all my bridges, yes. I don't know about that, but we're lucky <laughs> that you got the gas and not the water. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. Actually, thank you very much for this time. It's been so fun to get to know you a little bit better. And so I really appreciate you coming on my podcast. Well, I, I appreciate it too, Joni. This, this has been a blast. This is great. Listeners, if you would like to learn more about Gary Phillips and his novels, comic books, and many other creative adventures, be sure to visit his website, gdphillips.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, joanybcole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.